He waits in the house. He knows she's coming, and he'll do whatever it takes to ensure he's there when she arrives. Whatever it takes turns out to be a lifetime of pain for many, many people. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 134, The Heidelberg Murders. This episode is sponsored by Ring. This November, make home security your priority. Never miss a thing with Ring Alarm, video doorbells and cameras. Check out Ring's Black Friday deals and save up to 2,000 Rand on selected devices. See, hear and talk to visitors right from your phone, tablet or PC from anywhere. Ring's Black Friday deals are available at Take-A-Lot, Vodacom and Incredible Connection. This Black Friday, keep an eye on what's most valuable to you. Because with Ring, you're always home. Visit ring.com. A huge thank you to Ring for sponsoring this episode of True Crime South Africa. Since 2019, True Crime South Africa has been telling the stories of the victims of violent crime in South Africa. The podcast is independent. That means no big or even little corporates fund it. And that's just the way I like it. And it's the only independent podcast in South Africa that consistently charts in the top 10. Keeping a podcast like this going is time-consuming. And for the most part, it remains a one-woman process. It's me. I'm the one woman. You. Yes, you, are the reason this podcast continues to flourish and help bring in tips on missing person and cold cases. If you'd like to help keep the show running, please consider supporting our sponsors, signing up to Patreon or PayPal, follow the show on the socials, as the kids say, and share it with your fellow partners in crime. You can find our social links and learn more about our sponsors at True Crime South Africa forward slash donate. Shout out to this week's Patreon and PayPal superstars. A huge thank you goes out to Crystal, Renee, Graham Oberholzer, Pindile Butelezi, Tracy Fulker, Janine Feltman, Desi27, Odette Smith, Jane Williamson, and Joe Teets. Thank you so much, everyone. Patreon supporters get one additional exclusive episode a month, a shout-out on the pod, and other exclusive contents, including Q&As with me, as and when it's available. It's a minimum of $1 a month. I think you should do it. Please. And thank you. Keba. In researching this episode, I was once again reminded of the connections that exist between people and how many of the cases I discuss, research, and cover are linked in ways that go beyond the obvious. I'll get into that a little later in the episode, but do be warned that this case is a pretty devastating one to listen to and does involve the death of a young child. In researching this case, 
I used a judgment from the trial, an episode of Heiskenoot Vare Levensdramas, and several media articles as my sources. I was also able to speak with one of the people involved, as you'll hear later in the episode. So, let's get into episode 134, The Heidelberg Murders. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Liz Marie Minnie was born Elizabeth Magdalene Minnie in Heidelberg on the 5th of October 1984. She was the oldest of her siblings, and her mom described her as a soft-natured girl who was close to her sisters and enjoyed writing. Liz Marie kept a diary throughout most of her life, and journaling would help her through some very difficult times when her parents divorced when she was still quite young. Initially, her and her siblings stayed with their mom, but when Liz Marie was 10, they moved in with her grandparents. In 2001, when Liz Marie was in grade 11, she attended a dance in Heidelberg, and it was there that she met Johann Rosli. Johann Rosli was born Gert Johannes Rosli. When he met Liz Marie in 2001, he was 22 years old and living with his parents on their farm just outside Heidelberg. There isn't much of Johann's background in the public domain, but much of what we need to know about the man can be gleaned from how very soon after he and Liz Marie met and started dating, he became incredibly controlling in their relationship very quickly. Now, there was, of course, already a significant age gap. Six years may not seem like much, but when one of the people in the relationship is under 18, Liz Marie was 17 when they met, and the other person is already out of school and working, there is a significant gap there. And it's problematic. This was Liz Marie's first relationship, and that experience should have been with someone closer to her own age, who was also experiencing relationships for the first time. Not a man who had already dated several other women and was far more advanced in this area of life. Now, if this had been a healthy relationship, it may not have been much of an issue. But it was not healthy at all. And Liz Marie simply did not have the experience to understand that right away. Johan was incredibly jealous, possessive and controlling over Liz Marie. He also had a very short temper and became physically abusive toward her. When Liz Marie matriculated, she went to work for her uncle at his dentist practice and was looking forward to this new phase in her life as a working adult. As part of that, she decided that she needed to end her relationship with Johan, but he was able to convince her that he would change and they got back together. And in May 2003, the couple became engaged. Perhaps it was the permanency of the idea of marriage looming that finally convinced Liz Marie that this relationship was not what she wanted for her future, because by August 2003, she broke the engagement off and told Johan that this was final and she was no longer interested in seeing him. Liz Marie's mother says that at this time she saw a shift in Liz Marie, 
and she was convinced that her daughter was most definitely done with Johan. She avoided contact with him and was moving on with her life. Johan, though, was behaving in the opposite way. He doubled up on his efforts to woo Liz Marie and couldn't accept that she wanted nothing to do with him. He would regularly call her house, and when her mother wouldn't call her to the phone, he would ask her mom if she could try convince Liz Marie to get back together with him. At first, her mom was patient, telling Johan that Liz Marie had made her decision and he should move on with his life. But soon, Johan became more aggressive and began threatening Liz Marie's life. He would also make contact with her friends in an attempt to extract information about what she was doing and stalked her at work. Johan Rosli was clearly very emotionally disturbed during this period. When he discovered that Liz Marie was dating someone new, he attempted suicide, and his family got him into therapy after this incident. While this might sound like good news, Johan was clearly not seeing the psychologist because he actually thought he needed help. It seemed to be simply to appease his family and it would later emerge that a lot of what he told the therapist was not the truth. The biggest lie he told, perhaps, was that he had accepted that Liz Marie had moved on and that he was no longer concerning himself with her. That could not have been further from the truth. His stalking of Liz Marie had not eased up, and he had continued to threaten her. Liz Marie had decided at this point that she wanted to move out of her grandparents' house and into her own home. But with Johan's threats looming, those around her were not sure that this was the best idea. Around this time, Liz Marie had met a new young man, Jaku Hreilung, and he had been talking to his parents about Liz Marie's situation with Johan, and although their own relationship was very new, his parents suggested that perhaps the young woman should move into their spare bedroom for a while. They hoped that if Liz Marie was living in a different location and surrounded by people, that might deter Johan, and he would leave her alone. So in December 2003, Liz Marie moved into the Hreilung home in Heidelberg. Yaku describes Liz Marie as a very sweet and kind woman, and although he'd known her for a very short time, he really thought she was a special person. Johanna discovered that Liz Marie had moved in with Yaku's family and he started to make death threats to Yaku as well. Yaku would later say that he'd found Johan annoying but didn't really take his threats seriously. Yaku was also not the type of person to be aggressive back, so he pretty much shrugged it off and figured the disturbed young man's anger would burn out on its own given enough time. On the morning of Wednesday the 29th of October 2003, Johan Rosli had an appointment scheduled with his therapist. On that day, he told the woman that he had come to terms with his relationship with Liz Marie having ended and that he was ready to start afresh. The therapist would later say that as the young man left, it seemed clear to her that he was still dealing with anger and frustration but he had thoroughly convinced her that his obsession with Liz Marie had waned, and she had no significant concerns about his state of mind at that time. 
It would later emerge that as Johann Rosley sat in that chair in his therapist's office that day, he was already planning what he was about to do. In his mind, he had come to terms with his relationship with Liz Marie having ended, but not in the way his therapist thought. What Johann had decided was that if his relationship was truly over, then so was Liz Marie's life. And as he drove away from his therapist's office, he put a plan into action. Liz Marie had a day off on Wednesdays. Johan was well aware of this. He left his therapist's office and drove to her place of work to ensure she wasn't there. When he'd confirmed she wasn't there, he drove to the Kreilung home. Jaku Kreilung's 21-year-old brother, Abraham, who was called Aubrey, had started a new job the week before in Alberton. But on Wednesday, the 29th of October, he had the day off. His parents were out, as his dad had a specialist appointment to attend. Liz Marie was out, and Yaku was at work. Aubrey was waiting for one of his friends to arrive, as he'd agreed to go with her to deliver rusks that her grandmother sold. His friend, Heloise van der Vesteisen, was 23 years old. Heloise had met the Kreilung brothers when they'd attended school together, and the three had remained good friends. Heloise had been adopted by Johanna Grobler and her husband, and the woman described Heloise as an angel to them. The Groblers had been unable to have their own biological children, but had always felt that Heloise was like their own child. She was formally adopted by them in 1997, when she was 17, but she was very much part of the Grobler family. When Heloise was 20 years old, She'd given birth to a son she called Donovan. Donovan often accompanied his mom on deliveries she did for her grandmother, who baked rusks and biscuits to order for the Heidelberg community. While Aubrey was home that day, waiting for Heloise to pick him up, he heard a noise in Liz Marie's room. He went to investigate and found Johann Rosley in the young woman's bedroom. The room had been rifled through and Liz Marie's things were laying all over. Johann Rosley was sitting on the floor, reading Liz Marie's diary. Aubrey would likely not have known that the man who'd broken into his house was in fact Rosley, because neither he nor Yaku had actually ever met the man in person. It's very possible, of course, that Aubrey could have put two and two together, but what happened next was a blitz attack that likely gave Aubrey very little time to think about anything other than survival. We only really have two things that tell us what happened next in the Kreilung home. We have Johann Rosli's account, and we have the resulting evidence. Johann Rosli claimed that a struggle had ensued between him and Aubrey. He claims that Aubrey had pushed him into the kitchen, and he, Johann, had grabbed a knife off the kitchen counter and stabbed Aubrey. He claimed that he thought that this would stop Aubrey so that he could escape, but it didn't, so he continued to stab him until the young man collapsed. In a later statement, Rosley said, quote, 
I realized throughout that I could kill him by stabbing him with the knife, but I did not care. End quote. And Johann did kill Aubrey. The young man died on the floor of his parents' kitchen, and as he did, the next part of this horrific chain of events began to play out. Johann claims that as Aubrey collapsed onto the floor, he heard screaming behind him. Heloise and her three-year-old son had arrived to collect Aubrey and just witnessed his murder. Johann claims that he tried to stop Heloise and Donovan from screaming, but they were hysterical, and he decided that they would be able to identify him, so they had to be silenced. Please note that the following descriptions are extremely disturbing. Heloise did her best to protect her son, but she was blitz-attacked by Johann Rosli. She sustained multiple stab wounds, including four in her chest, two in the side of her neck, and two in her back. One of the stab wounds in her chest pierced her heart, and her left lung was also pierced twice. Although I really don't want to, I can almost picture the ferocity with which Heloise would have fought to get away from Johann, which is why he likely attacked her with such viciousness from so many different angles. Heloise must have known she was not just fighting for her own life, but also that of her son. Once she had succumbed, though, Johann did turn his attention to Donovan. The boy was just three years old. He would not have been the most convincing of witnesses if it was only him on the stand as evidence against Johann Rosli, but he simply didn't care. Little Donovan was stabbed four times in his tiny body, one in his back as he likely tried to run away, and then three times in his chest. And although any other human being would likely have been completely revolted at what they'd just done and fled immediately, Rosley did not flee. Instead, he searched the family home for cable ties, which he then used to tie Heloise's hands and feet together to make it look as though she'd been involved in a home invasion. What he did after that tells me that he was very clearly in a sober state of mind, because his ultimate goal was still Liz Marie. Johann dragged Donovan and Heloise's bodies into one of the bathrooms. He tossed Heloise on top of Donovan and pulled the door closed. Then he dragged Aubrey's body to the other bathroom and closed that door. He then began to clean up the blood on the kitchen floor. I can only think that he clearly knew that if Liz Marie walked in and saw the blood, she would immediately freak out. And I have to wonder, if Johann was somehow still thinking that he could convince Liz Marie to get back together with him. He would admit that he had gone there with the intention of killing her, but this action of cleaning the scene, besides disturbing evidence, of course, almost speaks to the actions of someone who wanted to create a calm environment, 
where he could have a conversation, which may or may not sway his mind as to whether he'd carry out his ultimate plan. If that was what he was thinking, he was deluded, of course. Not in a clinical sense, but in a narcissistic personality trait kind of sense, where, like so many others who commit crimes like this, they simply think the rules don't apply to them. And, of course, he can brutally murder three people and then still convince his ex to get back together with him and everything will be fine. And that's not how things went down anyway. Because Johan claims that as he was still bent over the pool of Aubrey's blood in the kitchen, mopping it up with newspaper, Liz Marie walked in the door. She, of course, immediately started screaming. I can think of no greater horror than walking into the house you thought you were safe in to find the man who's been stalking and threatening you bent over a pool of blood. Johan forced Liz Marie into her bedroom, threw her onto her bed, and immediately began a frenzy of stabbing. The young woman sustained 14 stab wounds. Johan then undressed Liz Marie and tied her up with a combination of cable ties and electrical tape. He claimed he wanted to make it look like Liz Marie had been raped and robbed, but I have no doubt that undressing her was just another way for him to humiliate her. Then, having completed the task he'd come to undertake, Johann stole three cell phones, Liz Marie's bank card, her diary, a notebook, and drove away in her car. It's very clear to me that Johann Rosley would have killed anyone who had come to the house that day before Liz Marie arrived. If Aubrey and Yaku's parents had been home, he undoubtedly would have killed both of them too. The couple did return home not long after Johann had left, and devastatingly walked into the scene of horror in their home. Yaku Kreilung arrived home from work that afternoon to find his home surrounded by police cars. Detective Dion Dobal was the first senior officer to assess the crime scene that day. When he talks to the producers of Heiskenuit Vara Levenstramas, he becomes emotional when he speaks about finding little Donovan's body underneath his mother's. This crime scene would be life-changing for many of the officers that attended that day. It was a mass murder beyond what most of them had ever seen in their careers, and the added horror of a child victim just made it even worse. One of the investigators was no longer able to remain in the police service after this case and resigned shortly afterwards. Detective Dobal, though, was tasked with finding out who had committed the horrendous crimes, and so he had to force himself to look. In the early hours of the crimes coming to light, no one really knew what the nature of the case was. With a car and a few items having been stolen, and Heloise and Liz Marie tied up, it was possible it could have been a robbery, but it certainly seemed like something more personal to Dobal. And when he started to speak with the Kreilungs, 
it became clear that there was far more to the murders than met the eye. They immediately told him about Johan Rosley, and when a canvas of the neighbourhood was done, a neighbour said that they'd seen a young white male at the home around noon that day. Police immediately tracked down Johan Rosley and arrived at his home. Johan seemed shocked to hear the news of Liz Marie's murder and the events that had occurred at the Kreilung home that day. He claimed he'd had absolutely nothing to do with the murders, and at that early stage, police didn't have enough to detain him, so they used their warrant to collect some pieces of clothing that belonged to him and left. The following day, Liz Marie's car was found abandoned near a shopping centre in Heidelberg. Her ATM card had been used and a significant amount of money had been withdrawn. On the 30th of October, as the loved ones of the four victims woke up to their first full day on earth without their family members, Detective Dobal received an urgent call to report to a hospital in Heidelberg. He was informed that his suspect in the Heidelberg mass murder was involved in a hostage situation at the hospital. Earlier that day, Johan Rosli had driven from his parents' home to Heidelberg Hospital, where his therapist had her offices. Although he didn't have an appointment that day, when she saw the state he was in, she realised he needed immediate attention. Rosley was wearing nothing more than a pair of shorts, and he had cuts on his thighs and arms. The therapist did not immediately see the knife in his hand, but when she did, she realised she was in a very dangerous situation. Johan began to ramble about Liz Marie's death and told the woman he wanted to speak to her family and offer his condolences. He never said he had killed Liz Marie, but did shock the woman by admitting to having killed Aubrey Kreilung. Other employees at the hospital realised that there was a serious situation at hand and called the police. Although the therapist tried to talk Johan into handing over the knife, he refused and said he was going to take his own life. News of the situation spread like wildfire through Heidelberg, and a local journalist arrived at the scene at the same time as police were setting up a hostage negotiator, and should that fail, a sniper. They did not want to risk Johan harming himself or anyone else, so they were willing to inflict a non-fatal gunshot wound to take him down. The standoff continued for several hours. Johan kept insisting that he wanted to speak with Liz Marie's family, and the police officers were most certainly not going to firstly bring additional innocent members of the public into the dangerous scene, nor were they about to further traumatise Liz Marie's already grieving family. Eventually the order was given to take Johan down and the sniper lined up his shot. The local journalist was inexplicably close to the scene, though, and she had no idea that there was a sniper behind her. At the very moment the sniper wanted to fire, the journalist heard a noise and stepped forward to see what was happening and unknowingly put herself between the sniper and Johan. A quick-thinking police officer pushed the woman out the way, and at that moment, the sniper fired a bullet into Johan's shoulder. The man collapsed, 
and police moved in, handcuffing him and taking the knife. Johan was taken into custody and started to talk to Detective Dobal. He told him to go to his parents' farmhouse and look in an outside building. As Johan was being treated for the gunshot wound to his shoulder, Dobel went to Johan's parents' home with a warrant. In an outbuilding, he found Liz Marie's diary, a noose tied to a roof beam, and a suicide letter that Johan had written to his parents, explaining that he did not want to live without Liz Marie. Police would also later find additional evidence that linked Johan to the crimes, including Liz Marie's blood on his T-shirt, cigarette butts from the scene with his DNA on them, and pieces of his fingernails, which had been torn off during the various struggles with the victims that day. Although the victims' families were grateful that someone had been arrested, they were also horrified to learn that the man who had so aggressively stalked Liz Marie had actually followed through on his threats. Johan Rosley was sent for a psychiatric assessment at Vescorpi Psychiatric Hospital. Within a few days of arriving there, he attempted to escape and was sent to a more secure facility for the remainder of his assessment. He was found to be fit to stand trial and not diagnosed with any mental health condition that could have impacted his behaviour at the time of his crime. He was diagnosed with an adjustment disorder. An adjustment disorder is an emotional or behavioural reaction to a stressful event or a change in a person's life. The reaction is considered an unhealthy or excessive response to the event within three months of it happening. Adjustment disorders are usually diagnosed in children and adolescents, and it's quite rare for them to be formally diagnosed in adults. Johan was also found to have disordered anxiety and mild depression. When Johan's trial started in 2004, he surprised everyone by pleading guilty to all four murders. He would not, however, testify in his own defence. The mitigating circumstances that his attorney attempted to put forward included that Johan had intended to kill Liz Marie but only because he was emotionally distraught and he had not premeditated the murders of Aubrey, Heloise and Donovan. In aggravation of sentence, the state presented testimony from Detective Dobal, who, upon being asked to describe finding Donovan, broke down on the stand, and the trial was postponed until he was able to continue. The evidence from the victim's autopsies was also presented to inform the court how violent the crimes had been. Some of the family members of the victims also testified about the impact that their losses had had on their lives and their families. Aubrey's dad was unable to testify about the loss of his son and discovering the bodies, as he was simply too emotionally distraught to do so. Johann's parents attended each court appearance and comforted him when he cried upon hearing the testimony of the victim's families. They were there when the judge handed down Johann's sentence too. 
The judge found that there was enough evidence to show that although he had premeditated Liz Marie's murder, he could not have known that other people would be at the house. And thus the judge felt that, that they could not cite the three other murders as being premeditated. The judge also decided that Liz Marie's murder could be seen as a crime of passion because Johann was so emotionally disturbed by his breakup. And if your eyes aren't already the size of saucers, like mine were when I first read this, hold on to your eyebrows because it gets worse. Johann Rosli was sentenced to 18 years for the murder of Liz Marie Minnie and 15 years each for the other three murders. And because these sentences would be served concurrently, that is all he would have to serve. Not 18 years plus 3 times 15 for each of the other lives he took. In fact, with an 18-year sentence, he could be out on parole in 12 years. Donovan van der Verstaisen did not even get to live to 12. But his killer could serve that much time for viciously killing four people because he was jealous. As if the sentence wasn't enough of a slap in the face to the victims and their families, the judge's reasoning was simply bizarre. I will admit that we have learned a lot more about domestic violence and coercive control in the last 20 years, but essentially what the judge was saying was that it was okay and understandable for Johan to have been so enraged by Liz Marie deciding she no longer wanted to be with him that he would decide to kill four people. And while he may not have gone into the house with the intention of killing everyone in it, I do think it's ridiculous to say that he could not have known that there would be other people at the house. He knew she didn't live on her own. She couldn't live on her own because he was threatening her life. Mr. and Mrs. Kleilung were home almost all the time. It was just a coincidence that they weren't home that day. But Johan didn't know they would be out. So, in my opinion, by going there and breaking into that house, he must have known that there was a very good chance that someone else would be there. He said it himself when he described Aubrey's murder. Quote, I knew I could kill him, but I didn't care. End quote. Thankfully, the state was as outraged at the sentence and immediately appealed. In 2006, the sentence was reviewed by an appeal court. That court found that the previous court had made an error in waiving a life sentence for the premeditated murder of Liz Marie and also found that the sentences for the murders of Heloise Donovan and Aubrey were far too light. The court increased those sentences to 20 years per victim. It was the life sentence, though, for Liz Marie that was a bit more representative of the life sentence Johann Rosli meted out to every single person connected to each of his four victims on the 29th of October 2003 because the lives of those people 
were forever changed. I was honoured to be able to speak with Yaku Hreilung during my research for this episode. And I'll get into how I came to speak with Yaku, because that's a story in itself. But first I want to share with you what has happened in the years since Johan Rosli chose to take the lives of four people in Heidelberg. The Hreilung family could no longer live in the house in which the murders occurred. I can only imagine that even after the blood was cleaned up and the carpets and tiles replaced, there would be no way that they could walk into that home and not see what they had seen that day. It took quite some time, but they were eventually able to sell the home that they'd likely pictured their future grandchildren in one day. Sadly, the new homeowner would also be murdered at the property when he was shot in a hijacking in the driveway some years later. The house again stood open for some time before changing ownership again. And now, Yaku says, there seems to be some renovations happening there, but there's no sign of anyone moving in. And Yaku knows, because he still lives in Heidelberg. He regularly has to drive past that house and the memories it holds. In 2011, it emerged that Rosley was using social media from his jail cell. A woman who had gone to school with him told a journalist that she'd regularly been communicating with the man on both Facebook and Mixit. She said that she'd had contact with Rosley after school and before the murders were committed, but hadn't since then until a Facebook profile appeared under his name and he sent her a friend request. She told the journalist that they'd been chatting about everyday things, and Rosley was interested in her life and whether she'd married and had children. The woman didn't seem to realise that incarcerated offenders are not supposed to have access to their own cell phones or social media, and she said she didn't know how things like this worked. She later contacted the journalist, concerned that she would get Rosley into trouble. Rosley had told her at that point that he believed he would get out of prison within eight years for good behaviour. When the journalist asked the woman if she realised that Rosley had viciously murdered four people, including the woman he had previously been dating, and a three-year-old child, she told the journalist, we all make mistakes. In 2015, tragedy once again struck the Hreilung family when Yaku and Aubrey's dad, Niels Hreilung, ended his own life. Niels had discovered the four bodies in his home. He had lost his son to a devastating and pointless murder. And Yaku says he was very simply never the same. When I spoke to Yaku about this, we both agreed that Johan Rosli had taken his fifth victim in 2015 from his jail cell. Yaku has no doubt that if the mass murder had never occurred, his dad would still be alive. As if this family had not suffered enough tragedy in 2018, an event occurred that Yaku describes to me as 
the one that nearly broke me. Yaku's daughter from a previous relationship, Abigail Mayer, who was just 20 years old, was shot dead in the street outside her mother's home in Heidelberg. And this is the point at which I want to share with you the connection that found me eventually able to talk with Jakub Kreilung. Abigail's mom, Alzona, is a listener of True Crime South Africa. We started chatting quite a few years ago, and Alzona's experience as a paramedic often resulted in some interesting conversations. It was quite some time until Alzona shared with me that she had lost her own daughter to violent crime. We discussed Abby's case a bit, and I said to her that if she ever felt that sharing Abby's story would be beneficial to her or the case, I'd be happy to cover it on the podcast. That moment, of course, once again reminded me how we never really know what the people we're talking to have been through in their lives. But that conversation would come back to me again later. I actually started researching this mass murder in Heidelberg a few months ago. I was pretty much set to start writing the episode and release it when I clicked on one last article for research and my mouth hung open. The article was about Yaku's connection to the case and right at the end detailed how his own daughter had also been murdered. When I saw the name, I thought, no, it can't be. This mass murder had never come up in my conversations with Alzona. And while I'd gathered she was no longer in a relationship with Abigail's father, I'd had no idea who he was or even thought to ask. I texted Alzona, basically saying that I thought I may be mistaken, but asked if Yaku was Abby's dad. She confirmed that he is, and put me in touch with him. Initially, I said to Alzona that I wouldn't mention Abby in this episode, because I thought that would be too difficult for her. But she said she thought I should. She said that she wanted people to understand how far out the ripples of violent crime go and how one person, multiple people, an entire family can be continually touched by overlapping waves of the results of murderous actions. Abigail Mayer was shot in a hijacking. She, too, was a paramedic like her mom. She was with her medic partner, and dropping off her car at home after gym when the hijackers pounced. Devastatingly, Alzona was on duty when the call came through to attend to a gunshot wound victim outside her house. She arrived to discover the victim was her daughter. Abigail's murder remains unsolved, and at some point in the future, Should Alzona and Yaku feel it would be beneficial to them, Abby, and the case, I will gladly cover it in full on the podcast. I wanted to discuss Abby here because I think it's important for us to recognize the true impacts 
and the incredible levels of connection involved in violent crime, its victims, its perpetrators, and the never-ending grief that covers those left behind. Yaku Kreilung is now married and has two children from this marriage. He still lives in Heidelberg. His mom moved to KwaZulu-Natal for several years after Niels passed away, but has recently moved back to Heidelberg. In 2020, during the COVID lockdown, the Kreilung, Mini and Van der Vesteisen families received some shocking communication from the Department of Correctional Services. I've sadly seen this happen very often when families don't have a proper explanation given to them of what the sentence an offender has received actually means. The families of the victims thought that they wouldn't have to worry about Rosalie for at least 50 years, but that wasn't what happened. In 2020, when Rosalie had served just 18 years of his sentence, he became eligible for parole. Now, this isn't usually the case with lifers, because now they must serve 25 years before becoming eligible. But because Rosalie's sentencing happened over a cusp where the Funvake judgment came into play, he was considered for parole at that point due to good behaviour. Good behaviour is an interesting concept when it comes to incarcerated offenders, especially if you consider the fact that they've been imprisoned, at least in this case, for pretty horrendous behaviour. After you've killed four people, including a three-year-old child, good behaviour is pretty relative, right? Also, behaving well in prison... In other words, not getting into fights or taking drugs or joining gangs and taking the courses available to you does not equate to a rehabilitated prisoner. You can be on the outside, not get into fights, not take drugs and not join a gang, and you can still reoffend. Regardless, the families were now faced with the possibility that their family member's murderer may well get out of prison after just 18 years. Yaku told me that they were invited to a victim-offender dialogue, or VOD, which is part of the restorative justice process. And as part of that, they could sit in a boardroom with Johan Rosli and ask him questions. Understandably, everyone present found the meeting extremely emotional. But what came out of Johan's mouth was beyond belief. Yaku told me that Johan Rosli is now claiming that he was forced to plead guilty to all the murders and he actually only murdered Aubrey Kreilung and not the other three victims. Yes, you heard that right. After 18 years, Rosli was now completely changing his story and claiming he had not killed Heloise, Donovan and Liz Marie. For this to be true, it would mean that by some amazing coincidence, there had been two killers in the Hreilung home that day. Johan, who had only killed Aubrey, and another completely unrelated to Johan, who'd killed the other three. Make any sense to you? No. Me neither. 
And that's without us even talking about all the physical and circumstantial evidence that ties Johan to all of the murders. While I'm not entirely surprised that someone like Rosley would claim this, killing women and children doesn't always make you the most popular person in prison circles, I am enraged that those families had to sit there and listen to that drivel. Yaku told me that they'd put together petitions which they presented at the eventual parole hearing. Thankfully, Rosley was denied parole. And really, if he continues on with this nonsense of not taking accountability for all of the murders, I'd like to hope, at least, that he will never be granted parole. Surely you are not rehabilitated if you cannot admit you committed the crimes you were convicted of. When I speak with Yaku, it's been three years since he sat in that boardroom with his brother's killer. Although my anger and outrage is fresh and loud, his is muted by time. The many tragedies he has endured and the knowledge that anger is like poison. It does nothing to the person you're directing it at, but it can be deadly for you. He knows that this is not the last time he and the other victims' families will fight this fight. And one day, Johan Rosli may walk free. I end my call with Yaku by telling him that if he ever needs a community of people behind him to petition or raise awareness for either this case or Abby's, all he needs to do is reach out because I know that this podcast's listeners will band together, as you have done so many times before, to do the right thing and make a difference. Speaking with the family members of the victims of violent crime is a grounding and humbling experience for me. It puts everything into perspective. All the downloads and episodes and congratulations and awards wither away in the presence of people for whom this podcast was created. It all means nothing and everything simultaneously. Because no retelling of the story will bring back four, five, six people and no amount of awareness will make any dent in the pain Yaku and the other family members carry with them daily. But it's the one small thing we can do. Because if we don't, then we do nothing. I'm releasing this in November 2023. On the 29th of October that has just passed, it was the 20th anniversary of the day that a young man, filled with rage and obsession, broke into a home in Heidelberg and lay in wait. He then systematically murdered every single person that crossed his path until the object of his obsession arrived. And then he did what he had always intended. If he couldn't have her, no one would. 
and no one would ever get to live the life they deserved after that. Niels Kralung may have taken his own life, but as far as I'm concerned, Johan Rosli had a large hand in that too. And Abby, no, she wasn't Johan's victim, but she was the victim of another Johan, another person, another murderer, who thought that their life was more valuable than another. This case leaves me with a heaviness inside me, because so much was lost in that house that day. The life Liz Marie wanted to live, free from the man who stalked her. Heloise and what she meant to her adoptive parents and the future she deserved. Donovan, three years old. Three. Everything Aubrey wanted to do, all the people he wanted to love. And everyone else. Niels, his wife, Yaku, his children. The Mini family, Liz Marie's sisters, Eloise's family. The police officers, the neighbors, every single person's possible future was snatched away. And changed forever. It's almost too overwhelming to consider. I cannot imagine what it must be like to live through. Liz Marie Mini, Heloise van der Westeisen, Donovan van der Westeisen, Aubrey Greilung, Niels Greilung, and Abigail Mayer. Rest gently. If you'd like to hear more victim-focused true crime content, please subscribe to True Crime South Africa on Spotify or the platform you're using to listen right now. If you're looking for something still related to real-life stories, but often with a more positive slant, you can check out my new podcast series, I Live Through This. You can follow both podcasts on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next week with another episode. Until then. Thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. A healthier, happier, more productive life starts with good sleep. Make sure you invest in the right bed. Dial a bed stocks the best bed brands at the best prices. Shop at 76 stores nationwide or online.